legacy, that's important to you. Now, we can't go back in uh, and not do mistakes that we've made. Does that make sense? So you can't go back and redo yesterday. We trust our past to Jesus. We trust his forgiveness. But whatever your family was, Jesus wants to make you steadfast in him now. Whatever the mistakes of the past were, we trust him with it, but now we go forward in his name today. Does your past hang over you like a cloud that won't let the light of the sun through? You try to be happy, but it keeps reminding you of all your mistakes? In today's message, Pastor Daniel is going to give you one simple truth to break up the clouds and let the light of God's sun through. Trust God with the past, that he redeems everything, and move forward trusting God today. How about it? You want to exchange your cloud? for the light of Jesus? Let's join Pastor Daniel in Judges chapter 1 as he continues his message. The conquest continues. All right, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1, we've only made it seven verses into the book of Judges. You know, it's amazing though how a few verses can have so much contained within it. You know, we always talk here, we love the scriptures, we love studying God's word together, but one of the things that you always have to remember is that just like our country that we live in, you can view our country from a lot of different vantage points. If you get in an airplane and you fly from coast to coast, you can get from coast to coast in about five or six hours, depending on which direction you're traveling, and you get the 30,000 foot view. Obviously, if you wanted to see it a little bit more, you can take a train. That will take you significantly longer than five or six hours, but you still get a street-level view, although very quickly. Or if you take a car, that would take you even longer than a train, and you can take side roads and all different things. You'll see it a different way. If you are crazy and you decide you want to bike across the country... It would take you significantly longer and you get a different vantage point. Then, of course, if you decide that you wanted to forest gump it and you wanted to run across the country or walk across the country, again, you're going to see it from a different vantage point. And for us, as we study the scriptures, when we're taking a chapter or a couple chapters at a clip, that gives you one view of it. And obviously, you can spend so much time plumbing the depths of a few verses. And so it was really fun, I'll be honest with you, for me just to take seven verses because I felt like I had the liberty to explore things that if I was forcing myself to make it through the entire chapter, we wouldn't have been able to take any of those concepts with the depth that we did. With with that being said, though, we want to try and make it through the chapter today. (laughs) So picking up in verse eight of Judges chapter one, it says this, it says, Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it and they struck it with the edge of the sword and they set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south and in the lowlands and 
Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba, and they killed Sheshai, Ammon, and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kirjath Sephir. Then Caleb said, whoever attacks Kirjath Sephir and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. And so he gave him his daughter Aksa as wife. And now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now, really what we see here is we see the descendants of Judah. They're in the land, but now it's time for them to take all of the smaller cities. Remember we made the case that with Joshua, Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land and as an entire community, all the 12 tribes together went to battle to take the big areas, knowing that once the big area was done, there were still little battles that needed to be fought, but each tribe was going to be responsible for the little battles. Now, I always bring this up because in a lot of ways, that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. See, Jesus has already fight and conquered the biggest battles that any of us have to deal with, primarily sin and death, which is none of us can defeat those two foes, but Jesus has done that. But when Jesus does that, he still leaves us to be involved in a lot of other things. Like Jesus is not going to take care of your finances. He gives you the tools and you have to do it. Jesus is not going to make you live a life set apart and pure You have to do that. Now, he's given you the tools because he's given you his Holy Spirit to be able to do that. But he leaves a lot of things in front of us. Does that make sense? So the big things get taken care of, but then there's these little battles that still need to be fought. Now, because the tribe of Judah has this place of primacy in the scriptures... We obviously Judah going first. We saw what had gone on in the last message with Adonai Bezek and losing his thumbs and toes and all that stuff. I don't want to go back over that a lot. We spent a lot of time talking about it. But now what we see is the children of Judah fight against three cities, Jerusalem, Hebron, and Debir. Now, all three of these cities are well-known cities. Now, first, as it relates to Jerusalem, it says that they took it, they struck it with the edge of the sword, and they set the city on fire. Now, what's interesting about Judah, of course, or Jerusalem, of course, is Jerusalem becomes the center of the life of the children of Israel, but it doesn't happen now. It happens later with the life of King David. So you'll see King David will, in Second Samuel chapter 5, will go in and conquer that land, and this is the place where the temple is ultimately going to be erected. But at this point, it's just another city within the territory that the children of Judah have to take care of. And so, sure enough, they fight against it. We find that the city was set on fire. You know, so obviously the Jerusalem as we know it was rebuilt later. And then from there, it says, and afterward, verse 9, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains of the south and in the lowlands. So they're moving from Jerusalem and they're moving south into this area 
that was commonly called the Negev, this area in the south, which was much more of a, a barren place. It would be kind of the equivalent of, for us, like Arizona. You know, I'm not knocking Arizona, even though it's hot there. But the idea, it's a more a desert-like area. So they go on down there, and they're fighting down there. And then it says in verse 10 that they went out against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. And so Hebron, literally the word means confederacy. Its former name was Kirjath Arba, which literally means the city of the four. So the idea of most commonly accepted is that Hebron was a confederacy of four communities. That's why they called it Kirjath Arba. But the names keep changing. And you can imagine that when a city has one name and then it gets conquered by another group of people, it, of course, gets a different name. Now, what's interesting is that we find out a lot here, because if you remember, Hebron was well known to Abraham. It shows up in Genesis chapter 13. And really the populous clans, because it says here, and they killed Sheshai, Ammon, and Talmai, all three of these men were the descendants of Anak, who were well known to be giants in the land. So if you remember when Moses sent out the 12 spies, Hebron was the place that got them all upside down. There was giants in the land, it was a walled city, all these things. And now they go in and just the children of Judah, of course, with their help from their brother Simeon, they go in, they conquer these three populous clans of people who were known as giants. They were very tall. And then they continue to go further south to this place called Debir. And Debir was called Kirjath Sefir, which literally means the city of books or the city of records. And so they're moving to Debir. But now what's interesting now is it says in verse 12, then Caleb said, whoever attacks Kirjath Sefir and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as wife, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it, and he gave him his daughter Aksa as wife. Now, what's interesting here is Caleb sees this area, and he says, listen, anybody who wants to take that land, you can marry my daughter. Now, I know it sounds weird for us, and I realize this is a completely different culture, but in a culture with an arranged marriage, a man who will go and conquer a city is the kind of guy that you actually might want your daughter to marry. Can I get an amen to that? I always love it when somebody thinks my girls are cute, because they're right, they are cute. But you know, it's like, they're they're young, and so it's like, well, so-and-so, you know, asked me if I could be their girlfriend, and I'm like, who? And I write their name down, because... I want to punt them across the playground. But that's a different discussion. But then I said, well, you got to ask him if he's got a job. That's what I say. Now, the beauty is, is they're all in like fourth grade or fifth grade. So I know they ain't got no job. And I'm like, well, if you ain't got no job, you can't afford my daughter. Right? And so like in some ways, like and any dad of a daughter, you know what I'm talking about. It's like you're not going to give your daughter to some dude who ain't got no job, who's got no courage, who isn't a man. You know, you're not going to give him to a little boy. Like, what Caleb is doing, he loves his daughter. He wants his daughter to end up with a great guy. He's like, listen, you're going to go take that city? Then you can marry my daughter. Because for Caleb, he's saying, look, somebody who trusts God is going to step into that. Somebody who believes that God has given us this land. Somebody who embodies the very things that Caleb has held his entire life. Remember, only Caleb and Joshua, these two men are the only two men who are part of the leaders of the group of elders who left 
Egypt with Moses. They're the only two who are in the promised land. Now Caleb is the only one left because Joshua has died. So Caleb is like, I want for my daughter the kind of man who embodies the very principles that I hold. Because Caleb was a man of faith. He believed in the Lord. Now here's what I want to tell you. You parents, you should be praying that God would bless your children with the type of spouses who embody the very principles that you hold as followers of Jesus. You should be praying for that. See, we're already coaching our kids. I have no problem. Someone say, well, you shouldn't do that to your kids. I mean, they're my kids. Like, I, we've been telling our kids, I'm just going to put it out there. You can pray for us. I'm like, listen, you're going to get to choose who you marry, but we all have to agree. And it has to be a unanimous family decision. Listen, you know I'm smart. You tell me right now, like, that's a good idea. And it was funny because the different kids like, well, you know, well, well, what if, you know, like Obadiah's face, like, well, what if like Maranatha doesn't like the girl I want to marry? Do I really, am I not allowed to marry her? I'm like, nope, if she's got a check, you got to honor Maranatha's check. That's going to be her sister too, not just your wife. And then Obadiah's like, I'm not sure if I like that. Maranatha's like, dad, I'm only going to marry someone who you think is the best. And I'm like, right on. I take a video of it. I'm going to show it to you later. Every year on your birthday, like, remember this right here? Let's take a new one now. I'm going to get every single year. And I'm gonna, but like, I do that because too many of us know what it's like for loved ones to marry somebody who doesn't embody the faith and the values that you have. And there's nothing wrong with loving your family enough to say, I want my child to marry somebody who holds what I hold to be dear. So I know it sounds weird. It's like, oh, so some guy who's just so strong can go conquer the city. Like he's going to give his daughter. I mean, what kind of dad is that? Like you can put suspicion in that. Or you can say, actually, the man who wants to go take that city is a man after Caleb's own heart. Because that's who Caleb was. Remember Caleb and Joshua, two of the 12 spies, they went in, they saw Hebron, they're like, look, it's a huge city, and there's giants in there. And look at this, these huge grapes. I mean, this is the most fruitful place I've ever seen. And Left up to our own devices, we'll never win, but God has given us this land and we trust the Lord. And so for Caleb, this is a good deal. And Caleb's younger brother, Othniel, takes the challenge. And he goes after the city, takes the city, and then he marries Axel. Now, of course, the elephant in the room, if there was one, was the fact that, okay, so his niece, he married his niece. That's really what went on here. And the answer is yes. Now, that's the way they did it then. They kept, they married within the tribes. The community was smaller. This was common, but we don't want you to do it anymore. Amen. The Christian tribe is much bigger now. So you don't have to marry like a blood relative. And that would be gross in this day and age. So don't do that. So, but the idea is, is within the same people who, uh, the people of God, the people who are set apart for God. Right. And so Othniel goes, of course, and acts. And this is like a great blessing for, for Othniel to be married now to the daughter of Caleb, this great elder in the land was a wonderful thing. Cause obviously for Othniel, he knows his brother Caleb. He knows the testimony of his life. He's seen Caleb faithfully walk with the Lord all these years. And he knows that the daughter of Caleb, she's a prize. She's a great catch because she's set apart for the Lord. She's learned how to live. She knows what it means to have faith in God. Now, Really, when I bring up all this, really what I want to encourage you is, listen, your testimony is important. You know, like your family name and legacy, that's important too. Now, we can't go back in uh, and not do mistakes that we've made. Does that make sense? So you can't go back and redo yesterday. We trust our past to Jesus. We trust his forgiveness. But whatever your family was, 
Jesus wants to make you steadfast in him now. Whatever the mistakes of the past were, we trust him with it, but now we go forward in his name today. I'll never forget when I was a young believer, I met this wonderful, wonderful couple and they were sharing their testimony of what God had been in their life. And they said, look, we come from a long line of alcoholics. And when we got married, we were alcoholics. And he said, and then Jesus invaded our life. And he said, and that long history of alcoholism died when we died and was risen again with Christ. And they have four kids and all their four kids are set apart for Jesus. Married people who love the Lord. And he's like, and for our family, we will never have alcohol in our house at any of our family parties and our families. That's who we are because that died when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. And I love that because he's like, look, it's been in our family for so, so long, but now that's over. And brothers and sisters, listen, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. And God wants to set a brand new legacy in place. But it's something that you have to live out. It's not something that God's going to impose upon you. He invites you into it with the knobs on your side of the wall, with the battles that you have to fight. You need to take care of that. You need to honor what God is asking you to do. And when you do that, God will do all that he wants to do. Now, what's beautiful here is we find out after the fact that, that when Axa came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. So really what she's saying is that not only, okay, we're married, but we should ask my dad for a field. And then it says, and she dismounted from her donkey and Caleb said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, give me a blessing since you have given me land in the south and give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs. And of course it says, and the lower springs. Now, you know what I love about this? Caleb once again embodies things that I want to see in my own life. Not only a courageousness and a faithfulness, but now we see him functioning in extreme generosity. You know, like you have to realize like this was long before like everyone had plumbing and uh, clean water coming into their homes. Remember, I told you that the Southlands were pretty barren. It was dry, right? And so this idea of we need water was huge, Right? And Caleb just doesn't give her water. He gives her both the upper and the lower springs. Now you can imagine that in that culture, just like in our culture today, water is a necessary commodity for basic survival. And you can imagine Caleb being like, man, I got to hold on to my water. Like I got all this land. I got all this stuff. But he gives his daughter not just the upper springs, but he gives him both. Why? Because Caleb is a man who trusts the Lord. Here's what I'll tell you. Your generosity is tied to if you really believe in God or not. That's where it boils down to. When someone says, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not generous. No, you don't. Because if you did, you'd be generous because God's so generous, he gave his own son. You know? And what's amazing is, and many of us have experienced this, there is more anxiety over material things in cultures of affluence than in places where there's poverty. I'll never forget, I did missionary work in Peru and we were going around, we were serving in Lima and Lima's a huge city and quite cosmopolitan, you know, but as we were coming to the city, we noticed all these, what we would call shanty towns all around the city. And as we were going, I'm like, man, we need to make sure we go out there. So we bought, you know, hundreds of pounds of rice and beans and we were making these little goodie bags and we just chose one and we went in out two by two and went door to door. And I'll never forget it. It's like, you know, I saw some of the most 
horrendous quality of life issues that I'd ever seen in my life. I traveled a bunch and I saw stuff and it was really heartbreaking. And I remember we went to this one place and and it was a much older woman. She probably was in her 70s or her 80s and she lived alone. And right as we gave her the rice and the beans and we were talking to an interpreter, we were explaining her what we were doing and we wanted to pray for her. Is there anything we can help her with? She's like, do you have extra bags? She asked. And we're like, oh yeah. She's like, can I have the extra plastic bags? And she started to divide out hers into three other bags. And we're like, well, what are you doing? She's like, well, I have family members who live about three miles away and I want to separate, I want to give this to them because they need it as much as I do. Now, this is a woman who, living by herself, she could have lived on what we've given her for probably a week. But right away, she's like, I have family members who need it more than I do. Now, that's in the midst of extreme poverty. But of course, here we all have cell phones and a thousand channels on our TVs and flat screen TVs and closets full of clothes and shoes. Even you guys have it too, you know? And it's like you have all this stuff, but yet generosity isn't really quite an American way of life. And I'm here to tell you, even if our culture isn't generous, our God is generous. And if we're Christians, then we're like our God is. He, he's transforming us. Now, listen, whatever your excuses that just popped up in your head are, that's all they are. They're excuses. And you just have to own them. Like, look, okay, so this, is how, this is what happened for me. When I first started walking with Jesus and I was watching in the Bible and God was working on my heart, I would finally just say, God, I'm just going to be honest. I'm just not a generous person. I'm selfish and I'm self-centered and I'm super sorry. And you know what? Confessing that stuff was really healthy for me. Because when you confess that stuff to God, he knows it already. And then he begins to prompt you to take steps of faith. So here's the thing. If you're hearing this right now and and you are selfish, and even though you've been blessed, and listen, statistically, if you make more than about $20,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of earners in the globe today. You could look it up. You're in the top almost probably 1.5% of wage earners in the world. So you are wealthy by global standards Maybe not by American standards. And if that's the case, you have been so gifted, so blessed. And I love Caleb because Caleb gives away a precious commodity, not because he doesn't need it, but because he can. And the reason he can is because he realizes the water is not his source. It's the God who has given him the land of the water. And for so many of us, we live with anxiety over material things simply because we're not generous in any way. Because we're trusting the stuff and not the God of the stuff. And the only way that we can get over that is to begin to trust God and live how he invites us to live. And then you begin to realize when I step out and I'm generous, God takes care of things in the most amazing ways. And many, many, many of us can share those type of testimonies. Where you tell stories where God invited you into self-sacrificial giving and things came up and how God provided. And really, even if you're not generous, you're still here today. So God has provided at least enough to get you this far. Jesus is In today's message, Pastor Daniel showed you why this story about a marriage from thousands of years ago actually matters to you today. Caleb was a man of fierce and unstoppable faith, so when it came time for his daughter to marry, he would only give her to a man with the same heart. 
Have you considered your personal familial legacy of faith? What stories of faith can be told about your family today? Hey everybody, Pastor Daniel here. I just want to say thank you for tuning in. I'm so stoked you're a listener of Jesus' Real Radio, and I know Jesus has amazing plans for you. I'd love to hear the story of how God's working in your life. Give us a call here at Jesus' Real Radio at 360-256-4655 or email me at real at danielfusco.com. We're so glad we can be a part of your life through the ministry of Jesus is Real Radio. Would you like to be a part of what we're doing? We would like to ask that you prayerfully consider becoming a financial partner of this program. Your contribution, no matter the size, will be used to reach people with the gospel message. Find out more at JesusIsRealRadio.com. Just click on Give. Thank you for partnering with us. Make sure to tune in again as Pastor Daniel will share the source of generosity. Caleb was generous with his daughter and gave her the upper and lower springs when she asked for water. Why was he able to do this? Because he knew that his source is really not in the springs of water that flow from the ground, but from the springs of life that flow directly from God. Come back to learn a generosity like Caleb's. There's more to come from Pastor Daniel's series called Arise. Please glance at the clock right now and make plans to join us again for another edition of Jesus is Real Radio.